Okay, so good evening. It's hard to believe that we are at the Book of Chronicles, Divrei Hayamim, which, if you're a Jewish person, you almost never hear that line in any setting, because almost nobody ever learns it. It's, it's an incredibly unstudied book, and it always has been, and I'm doing whatever I can to change that. I'm actually planning on teaching my very first course at Yeshiva University called Divrei Hayamim next spring. It'll be an honors course, but I've taught it before, hidden in the rubric of kings. I've, ta- I've taught Malachim before and slid in a lot of Divrei Hayamim, Chronicles. But this time I decided, let's just give it its own course and see who comes, and I'll find out come next spring how that all goes. And I'm looking forward to, to doing it. Uh, in 1483, when Daniel Tzachah Barbanel wrote his commentary on the book of Samuel, he realized that it would be irresponsible of him to comment on Samuel without reading Chronicles. Because Chronicles, which you've, you would find if you start reading it, it's baffling. It's not hard in terms of content. You could open it up and read it. But it's baffling what it's doing here. The first nine chapters essentially are nameless, starting from Adam. That's the first word of the book. It's Adam, Shade, Zoom very quickly through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, before you know it, the people of Israel. And then you have King David's line is the most important thing. Nine chapters of nameless. And then, basically, what seems like a rehash of the King David story, King Solomon story, through the Book of Kings. So, something happened in 1483 when Abarbanel wrote this commentary. He realized, there is nothing that is out there that I could read to help me. People had written commentaries on Chronicles, but they never wrote a what we would think of today as a serious commentary on Chronicles. What they did is they relied on their serious commentaries that they wrote on the books of Samuel and Kings. And all that was left to do when you got to Chronicles was to talk about, oh no, there's a million contradictions between Chronicles and the earlier stories, even though they're the same, let's fix those or explain how they jibe. Which isn't a serious commentary, it's simply addressing a systematic fact problem, and that was it. So Barbanel shows up in 1483, and for the very first time in history, somebody asked a different question, because it's always about the questions that you ask. Once you're asking the right questions, then you have a shot at getting somewhere. If the question is, how do we reconcile these contradictory texts, that's important, but it doesn't get you to understanding what Chronicles is doing here at all, which is why nobody studied it. So Barbanel in 1483, when he writes his commentary, he started asking different questions. I'm going to seriously paraphrase and abridge them, because time is always time. But basically, he started asking the following questions. Let's see now. We have the book of Samuel that contains the whole David story. We have the book of Kings that has Solomon through the rest of the kings. If you read those books, you will find that they cite their footnotes. They're not in the, you know, they're not subtext the way that we might put a footnote today, but they're footnotes. They say, for further information about this period, go see the chronicles of the books of the kings of the north and the south. There were libraries or books available in the biblical period that you can consult. And you understand that at least some of those books formed source material for the prophetic authors who wrote the prophetic books that we have. We don't have those other books, although, boy, I wish we did. Okay, so Chronicles shows up and is written a couple of centuries after all of that. And about half of it, almost like statistically, it really is about half of it, is a repeat of what we already had. And the other half is new stuff. About the same people, but new material or modified material. So Barbanel says, okay, let's consider both of these two 50%. The 50% we already had, well, we already have it. We don't need this. The 50% we didn't didn't have, well, the authors of the books of Samuel and Kings chose to exclude this material for a reason. So who needs it? So you end up with none of it being relevant. So he asks these questions, basically boiling down to, why do we need this book at all? He was the first person to ask that question. And then, it's a very serious question. Usually you don't ask that question about a biblical book. But for the first time, you have to get all the way to the geographic end of the, of the whole Tanakh to see it. You realize, you know, that's a good question. What is it doing here at all? The stuff that's rehashed, we know. And the stuff that isn't rehashed was deliberately excluded by the prophets who wrote the earlier books. And if all it is is a supplement, like here, okay, appendix, well, then you're not going to treat it as seriously as the books that are real books instead of an appendix. So Barbanel says in source number one in his inimitable words, these are the doubts pertaining to this formidable question. I just told you what the formidable question was. But in searching for its solution, I remain alone and nobody joins me in this endeavor. This is true. As of 1483, nobody was asking this question. 
I have not found any discussion, great nor small, in the words of our sages of blessed memory, not the sages of the Talmud, nor the later commentators. God has added to my grief in that there is no commentary on chronicles in this land, meaning Spain. He had just moved there a couple months earlier from Portugal. With the exception of a few glosses of Radak of blessed memory. And those comments are negligible in their brevity, and he did not address this issue at all. All true, but Radak did not address this question at all. He was dealing primarily with what I told you before, trying to fix contradictions between the Chronicles and the earlier material, because there are many. And those comments, I already read that. Additionally, the Jews do not study Chronicles in their academies. I go to the great yeshivot of Spain, and Spain, of course, was the greatest place to learn Tanakh. There was no parallel at all anywhere in the world in that in that era. When it came to Talmud, we had great centers in France, in Germany, also in Spain. There were some people in Italy still doing good work. In Babylonia, you still had some good stuff. You had communities that had great Talmudists and great legalists. But if you wanted to learn Tanakh, you moved to Spain. That's where you go, because that's where the, the best, brightest, the greatest commentators were, and it was learned systematically in their yeshivot. Unlike in France and Germany, where most yeshivot did not study Tanakh after they were children. And so Abarbanel then concludes this point, I confess my own sins today. I have not studied it nor explored his issues until now. The only thing that motivated me to learn Chronicles is that I was writing a commentary on my favorite book, Samuel. And it's irresponsible to write a commentary on Samuel without reading the parallel narratives in Chronicles. So Barbanel says, here I am. He doesn't say it this way, because he could never say it this way. One of the greatest commentators who ever will live. And I've never opened up Chronicles in any serious way until I was forced to. Right? That really speaks to what the problem is. Now, and until fairly recently, a Barbanel's question still would have applied. Until the 1970s, I would say. Almost nothing interesting was happening in Chronicles at all. Most scholars were not addressing it in any real way. They took it much less seriously than the earlier books of Samuel and Kings. That's where the good stuff was. And this was kind of like, all right, a little supplement here, a little supplement there, a clarification here, a clarification there. But it's just not as riveting. Samuel and Kings are among the most riveting books ever written. And Chronicles after that is a letdown. And that's how pretty much all people who even looked at it, that's how they felt. It wasn't until the 1970s that a handful of scholars blessed PhD dissertations. Nobody was doing any work on it. So it was wide open. <coughs> Somebody named Sarah Yafet, woman who became one of the heads of the department at Hebrew University, the Bible department at Hebrew University. Sarah Yafet, in English you would spell it J-A-P-H-E-T. Sarah is just good old Sarah. Not an observant woman, a, what you would call an, a good secular academic, but a very excellent scholar. She wrote some groundbreaking work on, her doctoral dissertation was on Chronicles. I'm getting ready to read it again this summer in preparation for that spring course. Cannot wait, but I've read it several times already. And a few other scholars got involved on the orthodox side of the fence. Rav Yehuda Kiel got involved in this also. So far in the last couple of weeks, I've read his thousand page plus commentary and I've read Yafet's thousand page plus commentary. And now I'm in the middle of a thousand page plus commentary just on the first book of Chronicles. So scholars are finally getting interested. This is the, it's a lot of pages, by the way. You wonder why I have terrible eyesight, but it's worth it. But it, 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 it's all worth it. They started asking different questions from what thousands of years of scholars were asking. And as far as I'm concerned, they're asking the good questions. Abarbanel started this process, whether or not they give him credit. Abarbanel is the one who got this ball rolling. But by the 1970s and 80s, they started to say, you know, instead of looking at this as a cheap supplement to the earlier books, why don't we see what this book is trying to say? What are the authors, or what I would say, what are the prophetic authors of these books trying to convey? What are their messages? Why are they taking the trouble to rewrite these stories? That was a very good question. It's a question that people asked that question, and therefore they just ignored the book. They started saying, let's get some doctoral dissertations out of this. Let's go in there, go into the trenches, and try to understand what are the messages, what are the theological underpinnings of Chronicles. As soon as you ask that question, it is a game changer. So we're very fortunate to be living after the 1970s and 80s because suddenly we can learn the book and it's astoundingly interesting. In fact, it's one of my favorite books. And I'll tell you why because I don't know where I'm going to say it in these notes, if at all. So I'll tell you now because I'm, I'm in the zone. So that's how a lot of things happen, right? The reason why this book is so excellent for us students of Tanakh is that when we read the book of Joshua, for example. We have the words in front of us, and we do our best to understand them and their messages. But we can't imagine 
how else could this book have been written? Because we don't have his source material. We can't ask that. I mean, we could ask it, and we can guess all we want, but it's pure speculation because we have no parallel source to work with. So we simply do our best to understand the text that we have in front of us. When you read Chronicles, we do know how another prophet wrote about this material because we have the books of Samuel and Kings. And not only that, it gets better. Once you have Chronicles, you can now start saying, oh, the authors of Samuel and Kings chose not to include this information or this story or told the story in a different way. Why? I can't tell you how amazing that is. To actually get a hand behind the prophetic scene, behind the text that you have in front of you, start getting the fingerprints of the prophets themselves. You start realizing you can see some of the choices they made, which you cannot do in something like the book of Joshua. There you just have what's in front of you, but you don't know what's not there. Here you do know what's not there, or you know how else it could have been told. That is so awesome. So I'll give you an example of the before and after and what a difference this makes. If you look at your source sheet, I made you a series of, you know, just a chart over here. Charts are the best way to do this, because that way you can just see it in your face. If you look in the king's side, King Solomon, he needed an artist to help build the temple. He was about to build the temple. He's in the process. He realized there were two things that Israel lacked. One was cedar wood from Lebanon. That was the best wood in the world. That's where you, so that you have to import that. So he had an alliance with King Hiram of Lebanon, today's <coughs> Lebanon, today. They called it Sor, or in English we call it Tyre, or the Greeks would have called this place Phoenicia. Today's Lebanon. And he ordered a lot of trees, and so they floated them down the Mediterranean Sea. They tied, it's so cool what they did. They cut them down, tie them into rafts, float them down the Med, get them into Yafo, and then somebody would have to schlep it over, whether slaves, animals, however you did that, and you brought it over to Jerusalem. So, but we also needed an artist. We didn't have the best artist in the world. Lebanon did. Okay, so King Solomon asked his friend King Hiram for an artist. So if you look at the right-hand side of this chart, right, where it says 1 King 7, 13, 14, King Solomon sent for Hiram and brought him down from Tyre. Here it's confusing. This artist's name also was Hiram. This is not the king. It's another guy from there with the same first name. Okay, it's not the king. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father had been a Tyrian, a coppersmith. He was endowed with skill, ability, la, la, la. He was a great artist. And of course, I smile with Jewish pride that here King Solomon couldn't find a good Israelite artist. So he sent to Lebanon to get the best artist in the world. And his mother's Jewish. <laughs> I love that. It's like a great Jewish pride moment. And you know that this mother was from the tribe of Naphtali. Okay, that's a pretty straightforward factual point. Jump over to the left side where the story is being retold in Chronicles. So here's Hiram the king talking to King Solomon. Now I am sending you a skillful and intelligent man, my master Huram, that's just a variant for Hiram, the son of a Danite woman, his father a Tyrian, and so on and so forth. Well, same deal, same artist, same guy, fathers from Lebanon and mothers from Israel, but this time from the tribe of Dan. Well, which one is it? So the in the era of well, which one is it? Where you're trying to figure out the question that people were asking for so many centuries is, well, what was it? What happened? So the way you come up with, this is standard, when, when you hang out with the rabbis long enough, you kind of get what they're going to do here. The answer is, well, let's see now. This man's mother had two parents. One of them was from Don and one was from Naphtali. So for whatever reasons, boy, oh boy, can I not tell you these reasons, one text includes the father's tribe and one text includes the mother's tribe. Okay, so that deals with the factual reconciliation. But if you do this thousands of times over, which is what you would have been doing before 1970, uh, it gets tiring. And you're not sure what you gain from why does one text have A and why does one text have B, even if you can fix the problem. So that's pretty much what our enterprise was for a very long time. Well, you can ask a different question. Let's say the book, since the Book of Kings was source material for Chronicles, why would Chronicles choose to tell the story differently? Regardless of the what happened. Well, here we can come up with a hypothesis. The hypothesis is, the book of Chronicles is way more interested than the book of Kings was in showing a connection between the tabernacle, the Mishkan in the desert, and the first temple. The book of Kings realizes, okay, they're building a shrine that's going to replace the tabernacle. You don't have to be a Bible expert to get. There's got to be some parallel here between house of God A and house of God B. But the book of Kings isn't as interested in showing how King Solomon was interested in mimicking what happened in the desert with Moshe. It doesn't make a big fuss about that. The book of Chronicles is very absorbed in that issue. 
So if you remember the tabernacle building, Moshe was in charge, but he had two leading artists. What tribes were those two artists from? Their names were Bitzalel and Aholiav. So Bitzalel was from the tribe of Judah, and Aholiav was from the tribe of Dan. Okay, so in Book of Kings, when King Solomon is building it, so King Solomon is from Judah. Okay, check, we got the Judah part. But it turns out that the artist, Naphtali, eh, buzz, can't have that. Book of Chronicles wants every piece to match what happened in the earlier era, in the desert. So the artist has to be from Don. Now, by the way, he didn't just necessarily change things to make everything work. You have to remember that the Book of Chronicles doesn't just have the Book of Kings in front of it. He also has many other documents that he's quoting. He needed a source. I'm sure there was some written source. He doesn't just change the text for fun. He must have had some other source besides the Book of Kings that identified this man with Don. That's the source that the Book of Chronicles wanted in the text. And we can test this hypothesis that the Book of Chronicles is way more interested by looking at the rest of this chart. Okay, so jump over to the second page. You know, the Hebrew below is just the Hebrew of what we just read. Well, the question in the Book of Kings, which I love asking my students... I already, the the final exam, I'm teaching the Book of Kings, the final exam is tomorrow, but it's on after this part. So, but for the midterm, they needed to be able to answer this question. How in the world did King Solomon know how to build his temple? Who told him what to do? In the desert, God told Moshe how to build the tabernacle. Okay, God told him, he even showed him some images, and then Moshe conveyed that to Bitzalel, and Bitzalel, the fine artist, did his job. Okay, check, I have a whole picture of what happened. I can make a movie about that. King Solomon, you get the dimensions and stuff and the materials, but nobody told him what to do. God never told him. No prophet comes to him and tells him how to build the temple. How in the world did he know how to build the temple? My guess? Okay, he followed ancient Near Eastern temple building techniques, and he made his better. And obviously monotheistic and without all the idols that you might find in pagan shrines. There's no other thing in the text that tells you how he knew what to do. Well, the book of Chronicles is interested in that question, and of course it needs us to know that the first temple is just like the tabernacle. So you have an unparalleled passage over there, at the top of the page over here. David gave his son Solomon the plan of the porch and its houses, its storerooms, and its upper chambers and inner chambers of all the place of the ark cover. First of all, King David gave a blueprint to Solomon, his son. But where did David get the blueprint from? Keep going. All this that the Lord made me understand by his hand on me. I give you in writing the plan of all the works. King David says, I have a prophetic document with all the instructions of how to do it. That's awesome. You know, here's the author of Chronicles, again, presumably finding this in his early source material. But for him, this is so important. This has to be part of the story. There needs to be a divinely revealed blueprint. It can't just be that King Solomon, oh checked out the ancient shrines and went to, went to Aram, where he sent his artists to various countries, took good notes, and then they came back and said, we're going to make ours better and more lavish. No, 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 no. Divinely revealed blueprint. It's just like the tabernacle. Or another example. If you look down in the it's line 3, it would be, right, where it says 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11. After King Solomon's temple is built... When the priest came out of the sanctuary, for the cloud had filled the house of the Lord, and the priests were not able to remain and perform the service because of the cloud, for the presence of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Is that parallel to the tabernacle? Cloud of God and somebody's not able to enter? That actually is. In the Right after they build the tabernacle in the desert, so God's cloud occupies it, and Moshe tries to enter and is unable to do so. So that part is identical. But we need something more, because other stuff happened at the dedication of the tabernacle that's not in this passage we need a fire coming from heaven because there's no fire from heaven in kings here all right well chronicles is going to take care of that if you look at the parallel passage on the left hand side when solomon finished praying fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the lord filled the house the priest could not enter the house of the lord etc so it copies its source material from kings but it adds that very pivotal ingredient fire from heaven so now it's identical to the dedication of the tabernacle. So by now, hopefully you're convinced. I'm thoroughly convinced, in case this isn't getting across, but this is one of the messages that, for whatever reason, Chronicles is trying to get across, that Kings wasn't trying to get across. Let me just run with this one, because boy, boy, do we have a lot of material. And I, I also like the interactive thing, but, but there's, there's a lot. 
And keep in mind, it's one Chronicles, two Chronicles, which we've already spoken about. It's one book of Chronicles, but it, it, it's big, but we're, and we're taking on that plus two other books, Samuel and Kings, to make this work. We're going to do this in 60 minutes. All right. Next, next story is when King Solomon had that dream at the very beginning of his kingly career, right at the beginning of his monarchy, where God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you one wish, and he wishes for wisdom, right? So if you look at the right-hand column toward the bottom of the page now, the king went to Givon to sacrifice there, for that was the largest shrine. On that altar, Solomon presented a thousand burnt offerings. Why did King Solomon go to Givon instead of just staying in Jerusalem? So what's the answer? There's nothing there yet. He has a, you can still build an altar there. But what's, what, why did Solomon not have, go to an altar in Jerusalem and schlep all the way to Givon? The answer is because Givon's altar was bigger. bigger. Right. You have a thousand cows. You gotta, you gotta keep things moving. Imagine throwing a barbecue, which I'm gonna have to get used to doing at some point very soon, right? The bigger the grill, the more meat you can get out to your guests. That's, but a thousand sacrifices—that is an immense amount of, of, of livestock. And so, obviously, the, you go to the biggest altar in the country. It's worth schlepping a thousand cows over there so that you can it can handle the volume better than a smaller shrine in Jerusalem before the temple was built. Well, in Chronicles, there's a whole other reason given, which has nothing to do with what's happening in Kings. The parallel passage, Then Solomon and all the assemblage with him went to the shrine of Givon for the tent of meeting. Oh, the tabernacle is there, of course. You never heard about that in Kings. Which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness was there. But the ark of God, David had brought it from Kiryat Yarim to the place which David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. The bronze altar, which Bitzalel, son of Uri, son of Chur, had made, was there, was also there before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assemblage resorted to it. So why is King Solomon going to Givon? Because the tabernacle is there. This is what Moshe built, and, and Bitzalel built the altar. It's not about size. Right? It might have also been handy if you're, if for the volume, but the book of Chronicles is not interested in that point. The book of Chronicles is interested in linking the tabernacle to the temple, for whatever reasons. Why was the tabernacle there? That's a, that's a good question. That's a long, that's a long story for, for tonight. But the tabernacle and the ark took separate journeys for a while, and King David is the one who got the ark to Jerusalem, and Solomon is the one who then builds a home for it. And then from then on, the, the two things are together again the way it's supposed to be. It's a longer story than that, but for now that will suffice. Okay, so this is a great example. I love this example because it's such a... We have this trivial, factual thing going on between of what tribal origin is the mother of this artist named Hiram. And if, you're, if your question is, well, what happened... It's really a dead-end inquiry, which, again, is why for many, many centuries we really couldn't get very far with serious scholarship in Chronicles. Once you start asking, what's motivating Chronicles to present something different from his source material? Why not just say what the Book of Kings said? The answer is there's got to be a reason. And when you start to dig, you realize this is part of a global theme that's running throughout the entire book, where Chronicles is very, very much more interested in linking tabernacle to first temple. Example number one. Example number two. King David had a father whose name was Yishai, or Jesse we say in English. How many sons did he have? Many. Definitely many, but you can even give a number. If you remember the Cinderella story in the book of Samuel, you know, it's glass slipper all over again, or maybe before, because the story is considerably older, I think, than the Cinderella version. Uh, so, Prophet Samuel shows up in Jesse's home, and okay, God has told me that one of your children, one of your sons is chosen, so they all line up, and we'll look at source number, we'll look at source number two, and you can pull out your calculators. Thus, Jesse presented seven of his sons before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, are, the, all the, are these all the boys you have? He replied, they're still the youngest. Okay, calculators, please. How many sons does Jesse have? He has eight. Seven plus David. That was easy. Okay, there were seven sons that were rejected from the kingship. We're just not chosen is a nicer way to say it and just as accurate. God isn't rejecting them. He just wants David. Okay, Jesse had eight sons. Factual point. Book of Chronicles, just in a name list right at the beginning of the book in source number three. Jesse begot Eliab his firstborn, Abinadab the second, Shimah the third, and Tanel the fourth, Radai the fifth, Otsam the sixth, and David the seventh. Oh, really? Where did somebody go? I thought he had eight. And I thought David was specifically the eighth. This is a straight-up factual contradiction again. So from the department of what happened, because our commentators are like, what happened? So they propose answers such as, Jesse must have had two wives, and these seven are from wife number one. So David is the seventh from that mom. 
And there was another wife, and she had the other one. Okay, nice. And by the way, could be. I have no problem with any of these answers. It's just irrelevant to getting somewhere with it. Here's something else you need to know. The book of Chronicles, the most important word in the entire book besides God, is David. This book is heavily about King David, which is why King David's genealogy is already up in chapter 2. If you just read the name lists, that author wants to get you to David very, very fast. Like from Adam, Adam HaRishon, zing to King David, 33 generations down, you get there. Lickety-split in chapter 2. And if you know anything about Tanakh, you know one thing. There's a magical number in there that just keeps on popping up everywhere you go, and that is the number 7. Torah loves the number seven from the creation narrative, and it never tires of it. And the rest of the Bible is just the same. Number seven is our magic number. All right, and King David is our magic man. Okay, now, let's see. We don't want David to be boy number eight of his family. He's got to be boy number seven. So they do actually, the book of Chronicles does mention this eighth son all the way in chapter 27. He just shows up in some random narrative. He's there. So the facts don't change, but the presentation is what matters. Once you start asking the question of why is Chronicles doing this, it's obvious why the Chronicles is doing this, because King David is the beloved figure of the book, and the beloved number of the Bible is seven. King David's got to be kid number seven. The Midrash caught that already. If you look at source number four, the seventh is a favorite among the generations. Among the children, the seventh was the favorite. As it says, David is the seventh. This Midrash understands all too well that Chronicles is not as, as dry of a nameless as this is. As, you know, just you read it, you're not going to be glued to you know, you're not going to be glued to your seat with that one, or or at the edge of your seat. You're just going to read that and say, when do I get to the story, right? But the midrash is paying much more attention to these lists and saying, no, 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 you got to understand. The presentation is doing something very important. It's specifically linking David to the number seven because King David is our beloved man. So once you start realizing to not look at Chronicles as a retelling of history or as a supplement to the earlier books or as a bad supplement to the earlier books, which is how it was understood for millennia, and you start saying, what's its agenda? What is it? What are the prophetic messages that it's trying to get across? It is an astoundingly fascinating book because, again, you could see... See? I, I agree. You can actually begin to see how it chose to tell the story, because you actually know. Here are some other features of the book of Chronicles that, that you should just be aware of, and then it's, it's worth reading it, just to, especially with the Samuel and Kings next to you, so you can really do it. You know that Bathsheba story that makes me very depressed, but I still salute it as the most honest story that's ever been written by anybody ever? Right? Go prophets, right? Like it's depressing as all anything. I mean, for the prophet, for the prophet Natan in the story, and the prophet who's writing the book, to condemn not just a righteous man, but literally the most beloved person in our history. David is not one of our top ten. He's number one in terms of beloved figures. Right? So to condemn him by unvarnished story, just putting him down for the two of the three greatest sins anybody can commit. And then the book of Kings is going to go after King Solomon for idolatry. Between the two of them, the founders of our dynasty, the builders of the temple, are guilty of murder, adultery, idolatry. Between the two of them, they commit the three most atrocious sins that anybody can commit. It's pretty honest of the prophets to get that on paper or on parchment back in the day. Well, neither of those stories are in Chronicles at all. Not the Bathsheba thing, and she's mentioned, but not the affair part. She's just a wife of David and the mother of Solomon. But the whole adultery murder thing, gone. And the whole ten chapters of aftermath with Amnon raping Tamar and then getting killed by Absalom, who subsequently revolts and then rapes David's wives and then he gets killed. None of that is there at all. It's just not in Chronicles, period. Okay, it's gone. And Solomon's idolatry, that whole last chapter of his narrative, that chapter is not written in Chronicles, so it ends on a very happy high note. Okay, so that's conspicuous. Here are some other things that are missing. King David, if you know his story, he didn't just get the kingship as soon as Saul died. It was a mess. Saul had a son, a very weak son, named Ishbosheth, who gets propped up onto the throne. There's tension. There's even bloodshed between the north and the south. It's a divided monarchy with a lot of tension. A bunch of assassinations happen, and before you know it, David is king over all of Israel. Well, that whole pre is missing. The way it works in Chronicles is Saul is killed. All Israel immediately accepts David from minute one. They all come to him and say, you're our king, we love you. It just skips several chapters in the book of Samuel, all the tense, hard stuff, and gets right to the good stuff. 
And King Solomon, his reign didn't start so peachy either. He had a brother, Adoniyahu, who was a rival. Their big, powerful people joined Adoniyahu. Finally, David was forced to announce that Solomon is going to be king. A bunch of assassinations, and Solomon's kingship is finally good, and then it becomes stable. That's gone. King Solomon is chosen in the book of Chronicles by God before he's born. King David lets the people know that Solomon's always going to be the one. He publicly proclaims Solomon to be king. Adoniyahu is never mentioned at all except just on, these are the names of David's sons. That's the only place you hear about him. Same thing with Amnon and Abshalom. You just hear about, these are the names of David's sons. You have no clue in Chronicles. These people all did really horrible things to varying degrees, but really all horrible. So much so that there's a commentary, if you open up a standard rabbinic Bible called Mikraot Kedalot, so there will be something in there, like in any other rabbinic book on Tanakh that you read, you'll see something in there that says Rashi. So you might be fooled and think, oh, this is Rashi. And many people over the centuries have been fooled. If you read it more carefully, you will notice that occasionally he says, Rashi of blessed memory says da 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 he quotes Rashi. Whoever this person is is quoting Rashi a bunch of times. And you know Rashi had this hallmark whenever he wanted to translate something to let you know what a hard word means, he'll translate it into medieval French. Well, whoever this commentator is is doing the same thing, but in German. And several other things also give away that whoever this, it's, you know, it's a medieval rabbinic commentary, but it, but it isn't Rashi. And already 17th century rabbis realized, okay, whoever this is, it isn't Rashi. By now, scholars think it's some 12th century German figure. But a great rabbinic commentator. So that's why I have Rashi in quote-unquote. I just needed to say that to explain what the quotation marks are doing there. Meaning if you open up your printed Bibles, you will see the word Rashi there. But it's probably or almost certainly not Rashi. It's another great medieval scholar, whoever it is, but it's not Rashi. So it says, quote-unquote, Rashi. On 1 Chronicles 10.1, the author does not recount anything but the downfall of Saul. When he comes to recount the David stories, he does not recount his flaws, but rather only his heroism and greatness. This is because this book is his and that of the kings of Judah. So he's saying, okay, David's sins are gone, and for that matter, Solomon's sins are gone, because this book is his. And this for a long time is how contemporary scholars understood the book also. They understood it as kind of a King David apologetic, fixing the problems of the past. Which, if you just take the evidence that I've told you so far, that's plausible. <laughs> it's, it's knocking out all the sins. Rabbi Yehuda Kiel goes toe-to-toe with this. He disagrees in Source 6. First, he quotes this comment that I just told you in Source 5. He says, His approach likewise has been adopted by most contemporary scholars. That is true. But it is wrong. We already have noted here and in the introduction and many more times in the commentary that the author of Chronicles assumed that the major stories of the kings were known to his readers from the books of Samuel and Kings. In other words, it's not being written out of history. And by the way, the biggest proof that he's right is the books of Samuel and Kings are still in our Bible. Right? An act of whitewashing would have had to entail writing this book and then getting rid of the old ones. And then, of course, we would never have known about Bathsheba or the idolatry. That would be a cover-up. Okay, that would be straight-up whitewashing. But here, it's not revisionism if the real books are still there. And they're not going anywhere. And in fact, what makes Chronicles... Noteworthy is that when you're reading it, you already know, hey, look what's missing. Very important parts of the story are missing. But you only know that because the earlier books, of course, are still are still there. So Rabbi Yehuda Kiel is correct on some level. There's no way you can say that the book of Chronicles is just a whitewash of the Davidic kingdom. And by the way, I'll add, yes, for David and Solomon, the two founders of the dynasty, they look way better, as in like way better in Chronicles than they do in the earlier books. But not the other ones. Not the other ones. The Book of Chronicles has plenty of nasty things to say about later kings. Often that has no trace in the earlier books, in the Book of Kings. There's many, many things. Even for kings that are known as very righteous in kings, Chronicles goes after them and really trashes them sometimes with piles of sins. So to say that this is a whitewash of the Davidic dynasty is not true. So the commentary that's ascribed to Rashi is incorrect in saying that it's a whitewash of the Davidic monarchy. It's not. But Rabbi Yehuda Kiel also is not fully accurate when he says that it's relying on our memory of the earlier books. For example, Chronicles includes 50% from those earlier books. It obviously does feel inappropriate to quote many things. So it's not enough to just say, oh, he relied on our memory from that one. Okay, why not all the stuff that he does include... So Barbanel is actually the one who, again, got us on the path, which was developed very strongly by Sarah Yafet, Yehuda Kiel, and many others in the modern era. 
Abarbanel said that if you just look at Chronicles, here are a couple of things that definitely come across very loud and very clear. If you know Kings, Kings is written in an alternating scheme because there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So you talk about the northern king, then you talk about the southern king, and you go back and forth and back and forth until finally the northern kingdom is exiled, and then that stops. In the book of Chronicles, there's no account about the northern kings. It's all about the southern ones. It mentions northern kings, but only in the story of the southern ones. It doesn't talk about independent narratives of the northern kings. That's important. And so Barbanel proposes the following. He says that traditionally we understand, and contemporary scholars are more or less in agreement with this, that the books of Samuel and Kings were written around the time of the destruction of the first temple. Whereas the book of Chronicles was written in the second temple period. So Barbanel says it matters when they were written. When the book of Chronicles was written, the author realized, look, the northern kingdom is gone. Those tribes are missing. They're lost. We call them the ten lost tribes. They were lost then. But the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and Levi, they're back. They returned from, they returned from the exile. They're back in Israel. And the temple is rebuilt. And the priests and the Levites who were running the show in the first temple period, they're back too. That's what's permanent. And so we're going to write about the things that are permanent. We're going to write about the Davidic line, which is still there. We're going to write about the, they weren't kings anymore, but they were there. The Davidic family was quite identifiable at the beginning of the second temple period, as we've discussed several times. Temple is back up and running. Priests and Levites are running the show. That's who we're going to write about. That's who who made it. So that's already something. Barbanel is hitting on something very, very important, namely that it matters when the book was written and who the audience is. In the contemporary era, that point has just been developed so beautifully. And so I'm going to give you a few of the highlights, and you'll just have to read all these books yourselves and enjoy, enjoy all the rest of the nuance. If you read the books of Samuel and Kings, who built the temple? King Solomon, yes. And what was David's role in building the temple? In, in Samuel, not even that. You're right, in Chronicles, what we saw, you're right, Evelyn, in Chronicles, big time. In Samuel, he doesn't give any instructions. Again, I have no idea how Solomon knew how to build it, but it's certainly not coming from David. The one thing that David did is he wanted to build it. He got the idea floating, but God said, no, it's going to be your son. Another thing that David did productively in the book of Samuel toward the temple is when he defeated enemies, he dedicated a lot of the spoils to the future temple. So he did something. But if you ask anybody, like you, or me, or anybody else, Samuel Kings, who is the builder of the temple, David had some remote assist, but Solomon is the temple builder. If I ask you, who is the founder of the Davidic dynasty in Samuel and, and, and Kings? What's the answer to that? David. Straight up David. David is the founder of the dynasty, and Solomon is the first of the Davidic kings. I mean, he's not the founder of the dynasty. David is the founder, it's his kingship, his family, and then Solomon just is what creates the dynasty. He's the first of many Davidic kings. Okay, that's another thing. If I ask you in the book of Kings, who is the religious role model against which all later kings are judged? The answer here is David. Right, A righteous king, you say about him, he was as righteous as David. He did what was good in the eyes of the Lord, just like David, his ancestor. Best compliment you can give anybody in the book of Kings. And if you say that somebody is a sinner... You will say, he, he did bad in the, in the God of God's eyes, and he wasn't like David. Okay, so if we summarize the Samuel King's lineup, Solomon is the temple builder, David is the founder of the dynasty, and David is the religious role model against which all later kings are judged. Okay, very straightforward. Those are their job descriptions. And those are three of the most important attributes of who they are. In Chronicles, something different happens. In Chronicles, both of them are a team for all three of those things. It's the David-Solomon dynasty. David and Solomon are the religious role models against which all later kings are judged. And David and Solomon built the temple. Solomon is the one who got out the hammer and the nails. Solomon is still the one who built the physical structure. Chronicles doesn't change that piece. But what it does do is it gives eight chapters, none of which are remotely hinted to in the book of Samuel, meaning they're not there at all. There's eight full-blown chapters where King David, after God tells him you're not going to build it, he gets down to business. 
he, you have the plunder part from Samuel's, but then he really goes to town. He sets up the priestly shifts. He sets up the Levite shifts. He sets up the musical shifts. He sets up the gatekeepers for the temple. And then he gets the divinely revealed blueprint for the temple. King David does everything short of just putting up the building. He's not a marginal figure to the temple who thought of the idea but was rejected and now his son is going to do it. No, 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 no. He and Solomon built the temple, plain and simple. When it comes to who is the religious role model of the book, you have this wonderful thing in Chronicles. Here's a verse in Chronicles that could not appear in Kings. If you look at source number 9 over here. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehavam, son of Solomon, for three years, for they followed the ways of David and Solomon for three years. You never have a verse like that in Kings because you can't. David is the role model by himself. But here, David and Solomon, both cast as basically perfect, or near perfect in Chronicles, they become the gold standard for the book, and all later kings are judged against both of them. They're very much part of that. Okay, so David and Solomon both built the temple. David and Solomon are both the righteous role model. And I like these little slide-ins. There are so many of these little teeny tiny slide-ins. Basically, as long as you have a microscope, you can see like there's thousands of these things, which are really cool. So bless all these 1,000-page commentaries. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to do the microscope thing. These guys did. They're great. And once you have them, then you see them. And, and, and they're really, really there. The celebratory verse in Kings in the chart right under source 9 King Solomon, after blessing the people, the temple has been dedicated. It says, on the eighth day, he let the people go. And he is King Solomon, right? They bade the king goodbye and went to their homes, joyful and glad of heart over the goodness that the Lord had shown to his servant David and his people Israel. Okay, so they were very grateful to God for giving them such, such greatness to David and the people of Israel. All right, book of Chronicles telling the same story. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he dismissed the people to their homes, rejoicing and in good spirits over the goodness that the Lord had shown to David and Solomon. One little word there, just get King Solomon in there, right? And his people Israel, telling the same story, same verse, almost verbatim. But now David and Solomon are a team. It's amazing. And, and there's countless times, time and again and again and again and again, you begin to realize that everything is about that, that they're an absolute and complete team. The founders of the co-founders of the dynasty, the righteous people that are there and the co-builders of the temple. There's a reason for all of this, of course, and that's what we're going to start driving to. But I want to make one other observation here. That is, if you remember the book of Samuel, this is a fun way to tie together various features of our survey. Uh, you remember what happened when the people came to the prophet Samuel and asked for a king? That was a pretty tense moment in Israel's history. It wasn't like, oh yeah, of course, thank God, we're finally fulfilling the Torah. No, 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 he was really upset. Never got over that one. God had very mixed reactions to the kingship, and we talked about all of this a while ago, right? Okay, well, in Chronicles, kingship is a very good thing. You have to be righteous, of course. But kingship itself is wonderful. And in fact, terminology is used that you certainly don't have any trace of in the earlier books. One of my favorites, source number seven. Sorry for jumping out of order on that one. King David is proclaiming to the nation, of all my sons, for many are the sons the Lord gave me, he chose my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Wow, it's God's throne. Well, that keeps things pretty harmonious. All of a sudden, we're talking about the throne of the king, of a Davidic king, that is, of course, not of the northern kings. They are so illegitimate in Chronicles, it's painful. Well, but the Davidic kings are not only legitimate, they're sitting on God's throne. They're God's partner. It is smooth as silk. And that's what Chronicles is trying to emphasize. And King Solomon himself was chosen and even named before birth. That's not how he got the throne in, in kings. There, there's rivalry, killing had to happen. Not in, not in, not in Chronicles. It is so harmonious. Now, let's take big steps back. Because the grand finale for the next 15 minutes. We're going to grand finale this in a big way. Okay, so why is all this stuff happening? I'll tell you why. I mean, obviously it gets more complicated than this, but let's take the 15 minute version and just run with it. Alright? Samuel and Kings were written around the time of the destruction of the first temple. And one of their major objectives was to justify the destruction of the first temple. It wasn't the only objective, but certainly in the book of Kings, it's all about that. That is the climactic big bad event. 
And people at that time were shattered, as we've discussed in so many different books throughout the term. So here's something to remember when you read the book of Samuel and Kings. So they're two different books, but they're, they're not just books. They're the eighth and ninth books of the first nine books of the Bible. And if you just open up a Tanakh, the first nine books are one great big sequential narrative, starting with the creation, going to the destruction of the temple. That's not true of the books that come after. It's not that the tenth book is now book number ten. It wouldn't, the book of Isaiah happens to be there in our printed Bibles, but that's not after the book of Kings. It's a different type of prophetic literature. But the first nine books really are one flowy narrative. Okay, so how does Samuel and Kings mimic the beginning? Well, I'll tell you. Let's look, go, go back to Genesis, which is not even part of our survey course, but it's still important. Uh, God creates the world, and we all know that it was tohu vavohu. It was unformed and void. There was chaos. God is the one who created order through God's decree. And the deal is that order remains so long as people are faithful to God. If people break that faithfulness, the world becomes unstable. Adam and Eve break it, boom, kiss Garden of Eden goodbye. Noah's generation sins in a very big way. Creation itself gets undone. That's what happens. God sets out a very basic package in the Torah itself where everything starts fundamentally unstable. God is the one, God's word creates order and people's obedience to God's word keeps order. God's di- people's disobedience to God's word is what ruins the order and it becomes chaos again. Okay? Once you have that, well, let's pay attention to how King David and King Solomon's reigns both went. They both started very unstable. King David, even after, first of all, he had Saul. <laughs> but even after Saul was gone, it still was unstable. Right? The northern kingdom was in existence. Each Boshet was around. There were assassinations. There was tension. It started very unstable. Then it became stable with King David as a righteous and powerful king. And as long as he remained righteous, everything was great. As soon as he sins, kaput, it all falls apart and unravels again. It goes back to the state of chaos. Same thing with Solomon. It starts off completely chaotic assassinations, unstable, nobody's sure what's going to happen. Then his righteousness prevails and he has a very stable, solid monarchy. As soon as he sins with idolatry, kiss that goodbye. It all falls apart again. It's just going back to the creation theme. It's echoing what creation is already teaching us and these two narratives are written with that in mind. So to them, their version of what happened is, since Israel was unfaithful, the world has gone back to chaos and void. We've undone the stability that's formed only through righteous behavior, and now we're back to chaos. The prophet Jeremiah, who's the traditional author of the book of Kings, says in source number 10 over here, I look at the earth, it is unformed and void. Tohu vavohu. This is the only place in the entire Tanakh that you have the full phrase tohu vavohu, unformed and void, with the exception of the second verse in the Torah, which is how creation started. Jeremiah understands all too well that he's living in the era where everything is going back to its original chaotic state. He lived to witness the destruction of the temple and the exile to, to Babylonia. He knew that the world was going back to Tau Vavohu. And so the books of Samuel and Kings, to a very large degree, they have many other points along the way also, but the big global point is that because of our sins, we're going back to Tau Vavohu. We're going back to this chaotic state. Well, that's very depressing, and when we read the books of Samuel and Kings, there was a very depressing moment in that, because that was the bleak moment in, in biblical history, a narrative that then the prophets have to really save the day with their prophecies of redemption. So that's Samuel and Kings. Well, Chronicles is another ball game. Chronicles realizes that hole and that cloud that's over all of Israel. People realize, how are we ever going to dig ourselves out of that mess? We had a destruction. We're not sure if this is redemption. All the things we've been talking about over the last two years. It all comes into Chronicles. Chronicles says, I'm going to write a new version of the old history, and it's going to be different. And he starts with Adam. The first word is Adam. He's linking all of where they are now in the Second Temple period to the creation itself and showing we are absolutely stable, and there is absolute continuity with our past. The destruction was not a rupture. It was not the cataclysmic event that we all think. It was a bad thing. But it wasn't the end the way everybody thought it was the end. It was a blip. It was a very bad blip. But we're stable. And all of a sudden, he just starts retelling the whole story from Adam all the way down. And 
the returnees were led by Zerubbabel. We talked about him several times over. He's a great grandson of the Davidic line. He's from King David. He was the leader of the community. Well, that's a big deal. The Davidic line goes on. And so what the, the nameless, which might be boring to the modern reader, they were the most exciting part of the book. The idea that you could trace King David back to Adam, 33 generations, he's connected to the creation and we're connected to him. Here's his genealogy all the way down to the people that are with us today. We're connected to David, we're connected to creation, we're part of that. Nothing has changed. The high priest at the time of King David was Tzadok. His descendants were serving in the second temple. Well, that pedigree goes all the way back also. The nameless trace, the current high priests, all the way back to Tzadok, all the way back to Aaron. That's really good. That's a great way of showing we're stable here. And the Levite singers, we can trace them all the way back to Levi, those nameless in genealogy. The people who are singing to us in the second temple, we have their whole ancestry. Back to, back to Levi, back to the family branches, and back to the Levites who were in charge at the time of King David. Everything is continuous. This explains why Chronicles is so interested in showing the connection, going back to an earlier point, between the first temple and, for that matter, the second temple and the tabernacle. We're all connected. We're just like they were. We're living the same world they're living in. First temple was just like the tabernacle. The second temple is just like the first temple. We need to link all of those things, and we need to link them very, very strongly. And David and Solomon's reigns were stable from the outset, and were always stable and always righteous. We're going to leave out the instability part from the beginning, and we're going to leave out how it all fell apart at the end. That dynasty is forever. It was stable. Everybody accepted it right away. No tension at the beginning, no tension at the end. We are totally, totally part of that. Sari Yafet makes a fascinating observation in her theology book, Theology of, of Chronicles. That's, that was her doctoral dissertation. Uh, she says that Chronicles typically expands a lot on the earlier king's narratives. It includes a lot of the king's material, and then it just adds a lot of material that we don't have in kings. The only post-Solomon story that is shorter in Chronicles than in Kings is the story of the destruction of the temple. In Kings, it forms the grand climax of the book. In Chronicles, it's quick, it's sad, but then it's done. And then you move right on to permission to build the second temple. It's the only time that it's shorter over there. That's very much part of what Chronicles is trying to do. There's one other piece that I'll tell you now, which uh, just to, to give you one, it's not in the source sheets, but it's, it's, it's one of the most amazing parts of Chronicles that I'm giving a course. Oh boy, am I going to go to town. The worst guy in Kings by far, and there are some good contenders for this, is a man named Menashe. Menashe, who lived toward the end of the biblical period, is a monster. He is king for 55 years, the longest king ever for Israel. But he was, he was a very bad king. And he... Worshipped every imaginable idol you could think of. His greatest crimes were that he didn't just worship idols. Oh no, that's not enough. He actually took some idols and put them in the temple itself. No earlier idolatrous king did that. They all had enough respect to say, leave the temple alone. That's for God. And I'll build idolatrous shrines over on this hilltop over here. Okay, so it's still horrible. In fact, it's egregious. But it's not as offensive as putting them in the temple itself. And he murdered people. It doesn't say who. I'm guessing some of the people he murdered were... Some righteous people said, hey, you can't do that. I'm sure there were plenty of priests and prophets who suddenly were dead priests and prophets who protested bitterly over these horrible policies. Well, that was the end of that. And the book of Kings has nothing good to say about him at all. It's those two things. And as a consequence, God seals a decree against the temple in his time. And that was it. The rest of the book of Kings is pretty quick. It says even Josiah's reformation can't change that. The decree is on. The temple is going to be destroyed. Goodbye. And Asher was that awful. You go to Chronicles, and you have him getting trashed also, just like in Kings. And then he gets captured even by the Assyrians, and he repents. He prays to God, and God accepts it, and he comes back to Jerusalem, and he starts removing the idols. I, I, I could talk quite long about that. I'm just not going to do that right this moment. But it's incredible. That's like one of the most astonishingly different things about Chronicles and Kings, because you have the biggest villain ever, and suddenly, he is the biggest villain ever, who then becomes the only Baal Teshuvah of the whole book. And God accepts his repentance and lets him go back to Jerusalem. Now, there are many, many things that one could say about that. 
some other time. But what I'm going to say right now is the following. The people reading the book of Chronicles are specifically those people who had been in exile because their ancestors had been idolaters. And now suddenly they're coming back. And what the book of Chronicles is announcing to them loud and clear is that the worst person who ever lived in Israel, the worst one ever, God accepts his repentance. And of course what the readers are supposed to infer is maybe God can accept our repentance too. Whatever we did in our lifetime, it couldn't have been as bad as Menashe. He is the worst. And if he could turn around and come back from the Babylonian exile and come back to Israel and clean up his mistakes, well, we can also. When you start thinking about Chronicles vis-a-vis these two earlier books and you realize the setting in which it is written and how the people felt, you realize that this rewriting of history isn't a historical revisionism in any sense at all. It's a prophetic message couched in earlier history. It's taking stories that the people already knew and turning them around and saying, we do have, we have stability, we're here forever. The destruction wasn't the end, it was just a bad blip. But here we are, Davidic dynasty goes on, temple goes on, we're here, we can trace our ancestries, ancestries back to King David's own and to Adam himself. We're as stable as stable can be. We're always going to be with God. That prophetic message to a despairing people through history as opposed to just prophets giving prophecies of redemption must have been one of the most rousing things ever to get the people to realize there's so much, it's not over at all. We're living on and we've always been doing this. We have continuity with our past. We're connected. There is no rupture at all. So for, for this book, I mean, again, you can really go crazy with this and next spring, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Can't wait. But in the meantime, I'll hold my fire for that. But what I will say is that this is a great way to wrap up the forward-going part of this course. We still have one more shiur in two weeks, don't worry. But the, but the forward-going thing is that just as it's coming to an end, you see this unbelievable sense of continuity, of hope, realizing that even when there are blips in the action, you know, the continuity goes on. And that's what, the, that's what the book of Chronicles is about. And ultimately, you get to see, for the first, I think, the best place in all of the Bible, the fingerprints of the prophets themselves. Because you really see the choices that they made to take earlier material and give a totally new prophetic message that was going to resonate very deeply with the people who otherwise were in a state of total despair. Okay, we'll take a couple questions, and we'll wrap it up. Yeah. What struck me immediately at the, uh, in your first words with following and everything you're after, is that there's a wonderful analogy in the fact that it's like the Rehayamim is merely, if you will, the director's cut of a film that had been released previously but didn't have certain things in it. My greatest comparison on that respect is the one I'm closest to is Lawrence Arabia originally versus Lawrence Arabia 20 years later. It was totally different in certain respects and it changed the theme of the movie entirely just as this changes the theme in a certain way. Okay, good. Good analogy. Good. Megan? Uh, yeah, I was going to say about the fire in the cloud that, that has even the prior antecedent, which was during, in the desert. Uh, God was in front with the cloud and behind with the fire and then you're exactly right. No, no, the Chronicles is specifically linking to what you're saying right now, as opposed to Kings that wasn't as interested in linking to that. Kings didn't need to feel continuity because they were there. They were in Israel, everybody was there, things were going right. But after a rupture, Chronicles needed to tell the people there was no real rupture. We have the continuity. You need to emphasize it more, yeah, Elias? How did Josephus react to the combination of chronicles and, and uh, uh, great question and there are scholars who pursue that inquiry in great depth I'm not I'm not that I'm not that one I don't I don't know enough I'm sure that he used chronicles to some degree more like a supplement because that's what a historian would do in this situation right as opposed to a theologian who's much more interested in what are the religious messages of the, of the two as a historian look it has a lot of great supplementary information I'm sure without knowing you know, I've read him before, but I, I can't speak knowledgeably about that. You know, I'm sure he brought in Chronicles material into his flowing narrative the way that he did it, because why not? It's extra, it's extra information, something that a historian would be able to use. On that happy note, it's uh, hard, to, hard to believe that we have covered, if you've been to every one, there have been 36 shiurim from the introductory one a year ago, October, until this one. And we have, we have marched through just about the entire Bible. It's really, an, except for the Torah. The Torah was above this course. This was for Nach. It was specifically for the books that are often not studied so well, even by people with great, great education. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege doing that with you. 
in two weeks we're going to have another shiur. It's not just going to be cake and, and tea. I don't even know if there will be any food at all. I mean, it will be a real shiur. I hope that you will come, and, and, and I hope it will be a way of culminating, you know, bringing together all of these things. And I will come in from Tinek in order to give that shiur. So don't you worry. So,